0: Book Two, Chapters Five to Eight of De Monarchia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. De Monarchia by Dante Alighieri. Translated by Aurelia Henry Reinhart. Book Two, Whether the Roman People Rightfully Appropriated the Office of Monarchy. CHAPTERS FIVE TO EIGHT CHAPTER five: THE ROMAN PEOPLE IN SUBDUING THE WORLD HAD IN VIEW THE GOOD OF THE STATE AND THEREFORE THE END OF RIGHT Whoever contemplates the good of the state contemplates the end of right, as may be explained thus. Right is a real and personal relation of man to man, which maintained, preserves society, and infringed upon, destroys it that account in the digests does not teach what the essence of right is it simply describes right in terms of practice if our definition truly comprehends what right is and wherefore and if the end of all society is the common good of the individuals associated then the end of all right must be the common good and no right is possible which does not contemplate the common good Tully justly notes in the first book of the rhetoric that the laws should always be interpreted for the good of the state. For if the laws are not directed for the benefit of those under the laws, they are laws merely in name, they cannot be laws in reality. Law ought to bind men together for general advantage. Wherefore Seneca says, truly in his book on the four virtues, Law is the bond of human society. So it is clear that whoever contemplates the good of the state, contemplates the end of right. If therefore, the Romans had in view the good of the state, the assertion is true that they had in view the end of right. That in subduing the world, the Roman people had in view the aforesaid good, their deeds declare. We behold them as a nation holy, pious and full of glory, putting aside all avarice, which is ever adverse to the general welfare cherishing universal peace and liberty and disregarding private profit to guard the public weal of humanity rightly was it written then that the roman empire takes its rise in the fountain of pity but inasmuch as external signs alone manifest to others the intention of all agents of free choice and inasmuch as statements must be investigated according to the subject matter as we have said before we shall have evidence enough on the present point if we bring forth indubitable proofs of the intention of the roman people both in corporate assemblies and in individual persons concerning corporate assemblies in which individuals seem in a measure bound to the state the solitary authority of cicero in the second book of moral duties is sufficient so long he says as the dominion of the republic was upheld by benefits not by injuries war was waged in behalf either of allies or dominion for a conclusion either beneficent or necessary the senate was a harbor of refuge for kings peoples and nations our magistrates and generals strove for praise in defending with equity and fidelity the provinces and the allies, so this government might rather have been called a defense than a dominion of the whole world. So wrote Cicero. Of individual persons I shall speak briefly. Can we say that we are not intent on the common weal who in sweat, in poverty, in exile, in deprivation of children, in loss of limbs, and even in the sacrifice of their lives, strove to augment the public good? Did not the renowned Cincinnatus leave us a sacred example, when he freely chose the time to lay aside that dignity which, as Livy says, took him from the plough to make him dictator? After his victory, after his triumph, he gave back to the consuls the imperial scepter, and voluntarily returned to toil at the plough handle behind his oxen. Cicero, disputing with Epicurus in his volume of the chief good, remembered and lauded this excellent action, saying, And thus our ancestors took great Cincinnatus from the plough that he might become dictator. Did not Fabricius give us a lofty example of withstanding avarice, when, in the fidelity which held him to the republic, though living in poverty, he scorned with fitting words the great mass of proffered gold repudiated and refused it our poet has made the memory of this deed sure by singing in the sixth book of fabricius powerful and penury was not the example of camillus memorable valuing as he did laws above individual profit according to livy while condemned to exile he liberated his harassed fatherland restored to rome what the romans had been despoiled of in war and left the sacred city, though called back by the whole people. Nor did he return thither until, by the authority of the senate, was sent to him his permit of reparation. And the poet commends this large-souled man in the sixth book, where he calls him Camillus, the restorer of our ensigns. And did not Brutus first teach that the love of sons and of all others should be subordinate to the love of national liberty? When he was consul, Livy says, he delivered up to death his own sons, for conspiring with the enemy. In the sixth book, our poet revives the glory of this hero. In behalf of beauteous liberty, shall the father doom to death his own sons, instigating new wars. Has not Musius persuaded us that all things should be ventured for one's own country? He surprised the incautious Porcena, but at the last his own hand which had failed of its task he watched as it burned with a countenance one might wear who gazed upon an enemy in torture to this livy also bears testimony marvelling now we name those most sacred martyrs of the decii who dedicated their lives an offering for the public good as livy recounts extolling them to the extent not of their worth but of his power and next that ineffable sacrifice of marcus cato the most austere defender of true liberty. Because of their country's safety, the darkness of death had no terror for the former two. The latter proved what liberty meant to him, when, in order that the love of freedom might blaze up in the world, he chose rather to depart from this life a free man, than without freedom to abide therein. The luster of all these names shines renewed in the words of Cicero in his writings of the chief good. Here Tully says of the Decii, When Publius Decius, chief of his house, a consul, devoted himself to liberty, and charged at full speed into the Roman ranks, thought he at all of his own pleasure, when he should take it, and where? Or when, knowing he must die forthwith, he sought his death more ardently, than Epicurus believed men should seek pleasure? Had his action not been justly lauded, his son would not in his fourth consulship have followed his example nor afterwards his son's son waging war against pyrrhus have fallen in that battle a consul offering himself to the republic the third sacrifice in uninterrupted succession and in the moral duties he said of cato the cause of marcus cato was one with those who in africa surrendered themselves to caesar and perchance with them it had been judged a crime had they taken their own lives seeing that life was a lighter thing to them and rules of conduct easier but cato who had been endowed by nature with incredible seriousness who strengthened this with unremitting constancy and who persevered to the end, in any resolution made or purpose undertaken, such a one must rather meet death than look upon the face of a tyrant. Chapter 6 He who purposes right proceeds according to right. We have then demonstrated two things. One, that whoever purposes the good of the commonwealth purposes the end of right. The other that the roman people in subduing the world purposed the public good we may now further our argument in this wise whoever has in view the end of right proceeds according to right the roman people in subjecting the world to itself had in view the end of right as we plainly proved in the chapter above therefore the roman people in subjecting the world to itself acted with right and consequently appropriated with right the dignity of empire. That this conclusion may be reached by all manifest premises, it must be reached by the one that affirms that whoever purposes the end of right proceeds according to right. For clearness in this matter, notice that everything exists because of some end, otherwise it would be useless, which we have said before is not possible. And just as every object exists for its proper end, so every end has its proper object whereof it is the end. Hence it cannot be that any two objects, in as far as they are two, each expressing its individuality, should have in view the same end. For the same untenable conclusion would follow, that one or the other exists in vain. Since, as we have proved, there is a certain end of right to postulate that end is to postulate the right seeing it is the proper and intrinsic effect of right and since as is clear by construction and destruction in any sequence an antecedent is impossible without its consequent as man without animal so it is impossible to attain a good condition of one's members without health and so it is impossible to seek the end of right without right as a means For each thing has towards its end the relation of consequent to antecedent. Wherefore it is very obvious that he who has in view the end of right must proceed by the right means. Nor is that objection valid which is generally drawn from the philosopher's words concerning good counsel. He says indeed, there is a kind of false syllogism, in which a true conclusion may be drawn by means of a false middle. Now, if a true conclusion is reached sometimes through false premises, it is by accident, because the true conclusion is conveyed in the words of the inference. Of itself, the true never follows from the false, though the symbols of truth may follow from symbols of falsehood. And so it is in actions. Should a thief aid a poor man with stolen goods, he yet could not be said to be giving alms, Rather is his action one which, would have the form of alms, had it been performed with the man's own substance, likewise with the end of right. For if anything calls itself the end of right, be reached by other than by means of right, it would be the end of right. That is, the common good, only as the offering made from ill-gotten gains is an alms. Since in this proposition we are considering the existent, not the apparent ends of right, the objection is invalid the point we are seeking is therefore established chapter seven the roman people were ordained for empire by nature what nature has ordained comes to pass by right for nature in her providence is not inferior to man in his if she were the effect would exceed the cause in goodness which cannot be now we know that in instituting corporate assemblies not only is the relation of members among themselves taken into account but also their capacities for exercising office this is a consideration of the limit of right in a public body or order seeing that right does not extend beyond the possible nature then in her ordinances does not fail of this provision but clearly ordains things with reference to their capacities and this reference is the foundation of right on which things are based by nature from this it follows that the natural order in things cannot come to pass without right since the foundation of right is inseparably bound to the foundation of order the preservation of this order is therefore necessarily right the roman people were by nature ordained for empire as may be proved in this wise just as he would fail of perfection in his art who intent upon the form alone had no care for the means by which to attain to form so would nature if intent upon the single universal form of the divine similitude she were to neglect the means thereto but nature being the work of the divine intelligence lacks no element of perfection therefore she has in view all media to the ultimate realization of her intent as the human race then has an end and this end is a means necessary to the universal end of nature it follows that nature must have the means in view wherefore the philosopher well demonstrates in the second book of natural learning that the action of nature is governed by its end and as nature cannot attain through one man an end necessitating a multiplicity of actions and a multitude of men in action nature must produce many men ordained for diverse activities. To this, besides the higher influences, the virtues and properties of the lower sphere contribute much. Hence we find individual men and whole nations, born apt for government, and others for subjection and service, according to the statement of the philosopher in his writings concerning politics. As he says, it is not only expedient that the latter should be governed, but it is just although they be coerced thereto. If these things are true, there is no doubt but that nature set apart in the world a place and a people for universal sovereignty, otherwise she would be deficient in herself, which is impossible. What was this place, and who this people moreover, is sufficiently obvious in what has been said above, and in what shall be added further on. They were Rome, and her citizens or people on this subject our poet has touched very subtly in his sixth book where he brings forward anchises prophesying in these words to aeneas father of the romans verily that others shall beat out the breathing bronze more finely i grant you they shall carve the living feature in the marble plead causes with more eloquence and trace the movements of the heavens with a rod and name the rising stars thine o roman be the care to rule the peoples with authority be thy arts these to teach men the way of peace to show mercy to the subject and to overcome the proud and the disposition of place he touches upon lightly in the fourth book when he introduces jupiter speaking of aeneas to mercury in this fashion not such a one did his most beautiful mother promise to us nor for this twice rescue him from grecian arms Rather was he to be the man to govern Italy, teeming with empire and tumultuous with war. Proof enough has been given that the Romans were by nature ordained for sovereignty. Therefore the Roman people, in subjecting to itself the world, attained the empire by right. Chapter 8 The Decree of God Showed That Empire Belonged to the Roman People for hunting down adequately the truth of our inquiry it is essential to know the divine judgment in human affairs is sometimes manifest to men and sometimes hidden and it may be manifested in two ways namely by reason and by faith to certain of the judgments of god human reason can climb on its own feet as to this one that a man should endanger himself for his country's safety for if a part should endanger itself for the safety of the whole man being a part of the state according to the philosopher in his politics ought to endanger himself for the sake of his fatherland as a less good for a better hence the philosopher to nicomachus to act in behalf of one alone is admirable but it is better and more nearly divine to act in behalf of nation and state and this is the judgment of god In any other case, human reason in its rectitude would not follow the intention of nature, which is impossible. But to certain of the judgments of God, to which human reason cannot climb on its own feet, it may be lifted by the aid of faith in those things which are related to us in the holy scriptures. Such is this one, that no man without faith can be saved, though he had never heard of Christ and yet was perfect in moral and intellectual virtues, both in thought and act. While human reason by itself cannot recognize this as just, aided by faith it can do so. It is written in the Hebrews, Without faith it is impossible to please God. And in Leviticus, What man soever there be of the house of Israel, that killeth an ox, or lamb, or goat, in the camp, or out of the camp, and bringeth it not to the door of the tabernacle an offering unto god blood shall be imputed to that man the door of the tabernacle is a figure for christ who is the entranceway to the eternal mansions as can be learned from the gospel the slaying of animals is a figure for human deeds now that judgment of god is hidden to which human reason cannot attain either by laws of nature or scripture but to which it may sometimes attain by special grace. This grace is attained in various ways, at times by simple revelation, at times by revelation through the medium of judicial award. Simple revelation comes to pass in two ways, either as the spontaneous act of God, or as an answer to prayer. The spontaneous act of God may be expressed directly or by a sign. It was expressed directly, for instance, in the judgment against Saul revealed to Samuel. It was expressed by signs in the revelation to Pharaoh of God's will concerning the liberation of the children of Israel. It came as an answer to prayer, as he knew who said in second chronicles, When we know not what we ought to do, this alone we have left to raise our eyes to thee revelation through the medium of judicial award may be first by lot and secondly by contest or curtamen indeed to contend curtere is derived from to make certain curtum facere that the judgment of god is revealed sometimes by lot is obvious from the substitution of matthias in the acts of the apostles and the judgment of god is made known by contests of two sorts either the trial of strength between champions in duels or the struggle of many to come first to a mark as in contests run by athletes for a prize the first of these modes was represented among the gentiles in the strife of hercules and Antaeus, which lucan recalls in the fourth book of the pharsalia and ovid in the ninth of the metamorphoses the second was represented among them by atalanta and hippomenes in the tenth book of the metamorphosis likewise the fact must not be disregarded that in the former of these two sorts of contests the combatants for instance champions in a duel may impede each other without injustice but in the latter they may not indeed athletes must put no impediment in another's way although our poet seems to think otherwise in his fifth book when he causes euryalus to be rewarded tully following the opinion of Chrysippus, does better to forbid this in the third book of Moral Duties, where he says, Chrysippus, wise in this as in most matters, declares that whoever runs a race should endeavor with most strenuous effort to come off victor, but in no way should he trip up the one with whom he contends. From the distinction drawn in this chapter, we may grant two effective modes by which the hidden decree of God is revealed. One, a contest of athletes, the other, a contest of champions. Both of these modes I will discuss in the chapter immediately following. End of Book 2, Chapters 5 to 8